In terms of her business judgment and acumen, I think it's fair to say that we do know. I mean, she was pushing to merge the Viacom and the CBS companies into one larger company. And I think she's pretty much been vindicated on that. There's no question today with the rise of the giant streaming services that you know size and scale in the entertainment industry now counts for more than it probably ever has in the past. I'm Chris Hill, and that's James B. Stewart, a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist at the New York Times and co-author of the new book, Unscripted, The Epic Battle for a Media Empire and the Redstone Family Legacy. Warren Buffett made a clear bet on this company's future. Berkshire Hathaway owns 91 million shares of Paramount Global, the resulting media empire at the center of this book. My colleague Katie Piper caught up with Stewart and co-author Rachel Abrams to talk about the challenges facing Paramount Global's current chair, Sherry Redstone, and stories involving the media conglomerate's founder, who just happens to be her father, Sumner Redstone, like the time he fired Tom Cruise after a bad interview. So there are so many riveting threads from your book that I could highlight for our audience. I was absolutely gripped while I was reading through it. There's made-for-reality TV drama of Sumner Redstone's romantic affairs to the -the behind-the-scenes politics of CBS and Viacom's boardrooms. Politics that, as a consumer, I realized affected all of us. But yet the thing that struck me most was just the tragic figure of Redstone at the end of his life. Here's this billionaire mogul who built this vast empire and was often fairly brazen in his attitude. And yet you guys kept relating these stories of him crying and and his estrangement from his family. Not to start us off with such a hot topic, but what would you guys say he regretted most towards the end of his life? Well, certainly, I mean, one of the things that it was like, it was really interesting to experience while working on this book is here's a guy who just has such atrocious behavior. He's abusive to his daughter. He's horrible to women. He's horrible to people that he works with. His son doesn't even talk to him after they become estranged. And yet at the end of his life, it's hard, you know, he's not the man he was when he was, you know, committing all this bad behavior. He is kind of more of a shell of himself. And there are moments where you kind of have you feel sorry for him because he's not the same person, but you also have to remind yourself that this that this man is not. You know, he's done so many things that I think somebody would say is are not really do not make him deserving of sympathy. What he regretted most, I mean, he never articulated regretting anything. I don't think. I think that was sort of part of his personal brand. But certainly, at the end of his life, he reconciles with his daughter, whom he had really chastised publicly and insulted and called names. So I guess one might wonder, you know, did he ever regret any of that? I mean, possibly. Yeah, I think there's one simple moral of this story, if you need a vivid example, of it, which is money and especially great wealth does not buy happiness or peace of mind. I guess, you know, for those who may not be as familiar, you go into great detail, but could you explain sort of the interplay between CBS and Viacom and and how Redstone intersected those two? Yeah, well, those two companies have now been merged into what's called Paramount Global. And certainly at its peak, Sumner Redstone was one of the towering media and entertainment figures of the last century. He was immensely wealthy, a billionaire many times over. And, you know, these companies shaped what America and much of the world consumed in terms of entertainment and media, including news at at CBS. So 
These were the, you know, the CBS television network, CBS news division. Viacom was an umbrella that included the Paramount movie studio. That was the crown jewel in Sumner's empire, as well as many very popular cable channels, MTV, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, Comedy Central. And one of the fascinating things to us about the story is that you see the personal affairs of these characters spilling over dramatically into the the business affairs. I mean, these, even though they were controlled by the Redstone family and by Sumner's Trust, these are major publicly traded companies with thousands of employees and shareholders. And Les Moonves is in there right in the thick of it, too, which, you know, Rachel, I know you did a lot of reporting on the during the, the rise of Me Too around that specifically. Yes. I mean, Jim and I got together because we were doing reporting on Les Moonves for the Times. He had he and I hadn't even I don't think we even knew each other before that, actually. But um, Jim and I collaborated on a story about how Moonves's attempts to keep a woman silent, you know, at the height of Me Too, when he's seeing all these other men being felled by accusations. Moonves's attempts to keep one specific woman silent is what ultimately got him ousted from CBS. And so, and I had, as you mentioned, I've been doing a lot of Me Too reporting, but that was really the story in particular that inspired the book. And Jim and I both got tips relating to how Moonves was basically trying to keep this woman quiet. And we were told to collaborate. And we did the story about that, that ultimately, you know, Jim and I both thought, wow, this like, th- there's just so much here that could be more than just one New York Times story. I think it's worth mentioning that Les Moonves, at his peak, was a towering figure in media and entertainment in his own right. I mean, the Hollywood Reporter named him the single most important person, most powerful person in the entertainment industry. And he you know, was famous for having brought CBS from last place to first place in the ratings. He had this so-called golden gut that he knew the, a hit show when it came. And he was much revered and admired, including by Sherry Redstone, the, you know, who he ultimately betrayed and turned against, until these, these you know, really pretty awful Me Too allegations surfaced. I was actually going to ask this later, but I'll ask this now since we've, we've brought it up. But we've recently seen with another company, Disney, this prodigal CEO return to the fold. And I guess my question is, after having gone through all of your research and work, do you see maybe a similar narrative potentially on the horizon for Les Moonves and CBS? Well, I'm, I'm very familiar with Disney. <laughs> I wrote an earlier book about that, too. You know, I, I think... The issue of succession, and which of course brings up the you know the very popular HBO series to which many people have compared this story. You know, more specifically, succession when you have a very powerful, long-serving CEO, not just Disney, but there's been Salesforce and Starbucks and uh, McDonald's, other other issues. There's a, there is a drama there, you know, Shakespearean drama in all these cases. I do think I would not directly compare Disney to to um, Paramount, Sumner Redstone situation, largely because Disney does not have a controlling shareholder. That made a big difference in what was going on at, in, the, in the Paramount global empire. And there's a lot more allegations of impropriety in, in the Paramount situation. But what is, makes these things, I think, in some ways similar and common is that when you're talking about the chief executive of a, a multi-billion dollar corporation, especially one that has so much influence over American culture, like a Disney or a, or a Paramount, 
you're going to have a fight over that. I mean, the, the money is off the chart. The power is off the chart. There's glamour. There are, you know, you know, celebrities hanging around. Many people aspire to that. And once they have it, they have trouble giving it up. I mean, Sumner Redstone kept insisting he was going to live forever. And he came to Hollywood as a mogul, really, only when he was in his 70s. And he was still going strong until he began to decline in his 90s. You know, this just brings me to probably my favorite character, if we were to translate this to a, a television series like Succession, is, is Sherry Redstone. When I was reading all of these narratives, she often became the most sympathetic person in and out of the boardroom. And I guess my question is, is now that sort of this carnage of the civil, corporate civil war is, is starting to settle, do we see her as being sort of a, an innovative corporate leader moving forward in the same image as her father? I love that you pointed out that she's your favorite character because some of the feedback I've been getting from friends reading the book is there's nobody good to root for in this book. She's the only one that you can root for. You know, is she going to be an innovative corporate leader? I mean, I, time will tell. I, I, Jim, I'd actually be curious to hear your thoughts about on that second part of the question. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Sherry is a sympathetic character. And, and again, you know, we are, the book has been compared to the television series. But one of the things in the television series, people have said, oh, there's nobody to root for here. But I think in this book, yes, you know, you can you can root for Sherry for good reason. I mean, at least she shows a modicum of common sense. She, you know, has some self-awareness. I mean, the outrageous behavior that's going on around her is pretty remarkable. So, yeah, I think she is a sympathetic character. In terms of her business judgment and acumen, I think it's fair to say that we do know. I mean, she was pushing to merge the Viacom and the CBS companies into one larger company. And I think she's pretty much been vindicated on that. There's no question today with the rise of the giant streaming services that, you know, size and scale in the entertainment industry now counts for more than it probably ever has in the past. And even now, people think Paramount is too small to compete long term with, with a Disney Plus, Netflix, Amazon, these, you know, multi-billion dollar, very deep pocketed companies. But there's no question that it's stronger together than they were when they were separate. Well, ultimately, what's going to happen? I, and again, I think most people on Wall Street feel it's not big enough and it will probably have to merge with somebody one of these days. And I think Sherry Redstone herself wouldn't stand in the way if she got a good offer from a, you know, a reputable company. That, you know, she wouldn't oppose consolidation, but she doesn't want to fire a sale price and she doesn't want to have a gun to her head. Building off of that, do you have the sense at the end of this this narrative that you've, you've woven together for us that she has been able to shake off the image that her father and Les Moonves and the other board members kind of cast for her early on and has been able to make her own sort of image in her, her own way? Or is she always going to be operating under that reputation? I mean, it's hard to think that she's totally going to escape the shadow of her father, who was such a large and looming figure, but she is certainly not him. And the company, you know, the old guard is no longer there. You know, she and she has expressed a commitment to changing the culture. Now, obviously, it is very hard to change a corporate culture. It's certainly a co corporate culture at a corporation as big as uh, a Paramount. And I think one, one thing we've seen in the past few years of the Me Too movement that's been really that's been really clear is that companies have gotten really good at sort of damage control and you know m and making a manicured public statement. 
they've gotten less good at actually rooting out systemic problems. But all it, you know, as far as as far as we can tell, she's certainly committing to it not being her father's company. And by the way, I think that that was really evident when she first started hearing rumors about Les Moonves and his possible behavior toward women, she brings it up with the board. You know, she pushes for a real investigation. And what ends up happening, as as we have said, you know, countless times over, is a total farce. You know, the board of directors, they hire an outside lawyer. And essentially what they do is just ask Les Moonves, hey, did you ever do anything wrong with women? And when he says no, they say, great, you know, basically, thanks for your time. And Sherry finds this totally unacceptable. And so I guess what all, all to say is that she, it's not just that, you know, Les Moonves gets kicked out and she you know, pays a lot of lip service to changing the company. She was trying to push for the right things back when he was still in power. And I think that does say a lot. Yeah, I think she's also matured, even in the years we've been working on this book. Um, you know, there's a scene where she early on goes to the big mogul conference at Sun Valley, you know, and like there's Jeff Bezos there and there's Bill Gates and there's, you know, these titans of the business are roaming around and she's there by herself for the first time. And I, you know, I, I think understandably she was very intimidated and felt, some, you know, insecure. Like, how, how am I going to like hold my own with people like that? And I think over the years, she's gained a lot of self-confidence, greater maturity. She's more articulate. She's comfortable addressing the, you know, public constituencies of big corporations like this. And so she really, she really has made a lot of progress, including the fact that when she started in this way, she's drawn into the story earlier in our book. She didn't want, she didn't want this. She didn't want to be caught up in her father's business. She'd been there. She'd been burned. She'd been humiliated by him. She didn't want to go back, but she had no choice given the, the you know, the, the people who are preying on him in her absence. So she gradually comes back in. And then I think as she did become more involved and did gain certain influence over the companies. And now she's vice chairman of Paramount Global. Uh, Global. She likes it, and like many people who get a taste of that, it's interesting. And you know, you're at the center of like some of the most important cultural movements that are going on in in the world and the and the country today. So I think she really has grown and matured in the, in her role over the years. That's definitely something I noticed in in the the threads that you were weaving is she was reluctant. She continued to be reluctant, but it seemed that she settled more into the mantle of it in the later days. But I, James, I think you, you mentioned something very interesting is that she was drawn in in part because she felt like her father was really kind of being preyed on by people both in the boardroom and at his home. I'm wondering if you could maybe paint a picture. We, we've talked a bit about the boardroom, but what was going on at his home during this period as well? Well, you know, so here we have Sumner Redstone. He's a, a mogul. He's a, a multi-billionaire. He's in his 90s. He's alienated his own family through his bad behavior. And he's surrounded by people you would think who would be there to protect him. But in fact, were in many cases interested in separating him from all or part of his fortune and his power, and none more prominently than first a woman who became his supposedly his fiance. I mean, he gave her a nine carat diamond ring. So I, I guess you could say they were, though they never married. She moved into the mansion. She was his sort of live-in girlfriend. And then he had another ex-girlfriend who, who moved in too. So he had two women living in there with him who slowly but surely insinuated themselves first into his love life and into his house then into his will, then into his trust funds. And there's, you know, we've showed the scene in one afternoon, they, they managed to isolate him from everyone. And he wired in one afternoon, $90 million, so then 45 million each. 
they ultimately walked out of there with over $150 million. But they were slowly but surely taking over his life and came very close to taking over the company, something I don't think most people realize. When it was uh, Sumner was in the hospital, he was in the emergency room, and he was in serious shape. One of the nurses who'd been caring for him at the house, when Sherry came to see him, pulled her aside and said, you should know what's going on here. And he started emailing her. And she started getting reports of how he was being treated uh, inside the house. And though they were very painful, they were so painful, she told him not to send any more, to send them to her son because she didn't, she couldn't bear to read them. But that's when she realized that she couldn't just isolate herself and sit by while the family legacy and fortunes and everything her father had worked for got siphoned away by these people preying on him. And it, it wasn't just the women. It's like other executives, advisors, lawyers. It, it's a very instructive tale. You know, there were suits alleging it, it was elder abuse. And I think of something many people with an aging parent, especially if they have some resources, can relate to. The, the, the efforts of many people to take advantage of wealthy people in their declining years. Yeah, that really spoke to me a lot. And again, as you mentioned at the very top of this, he's not the most sympathetic figure through a lot of his career. But when he starts falling prey to some of these other manipulators, you just can't help but but feel sorry for him. My follow-up to that is there was this very interesting interplay between sometimes they had to make the arguments that Redstone was very competent, that he was able to make his own business decisions when it came to the boardroom. But then at the same time, there were these these very interesting legal suits where they were trying to retrieve that money that he had given away. And I'm, I'm curious, sort of like if there are lessons that you would take about how we have to treat these, these very interesting financial dealings. Well, I think that, you know, if the law treats mental competency um, as very black and white. You're either you're either competent or, or and, and capable of making your own decisions or you're not. And anyone that's had to take care of a, a loved one who is starting to get older and maybe can't totally care for themselves understands that there's a lot of gray area there. I really feel like people will be able to relate to that aspect of the story in the sense that, like, you want someone that you love to be autonomous and to live a dignified life, but you also don't want them to get behind the wheel of a car and kill themselves or kill somebody else. And I think what you see in this story is that if it suited people to argue that Sumner Redstone was incompetent, that's what they argued. And if it suited people to argue that he was competent, that's what they argued. And it kind of goes back to one thing Jim and I have remarked a lot about over the course of this book is one of the big takeaways is who do you surround yourself with? at the end of your life. And as corny as it sounds, this book is really about, you know, the friends and relationships and people that you have and and not, you know, if there's ever a story, money cannot buy happiness. I can't say that enough. I probably already said it in this interview, but if money cannot buy happiness, and this really embodies that. Yeah. And, and, and not only did they say if it was in their interest that he was competent, if that situation changed, they just turned on a dime and said, oh, yeah, I know three weeks ago I said he was you know, perfectly lucid and competent, but now he's completely incompetent. They, I mean, they just shamelessly shifted their position to, to frankly, line their own pocketbooks. And I, I think you're touching on a very important issue here in the theme and something I'd like to see the bars, you know, the legal profession take up this issue because... It, the, the system isn't working. This like black and white thing, as as Rachel describes it, is too. It's too. It's too legalistic. It's not the real world. We got a confidential, thorough psychiatric evaluation of Sumner Redstone 
And we report a lot of that in the book. And if, if to have known what Sumner was like at his peak when he could, he learned Japanese in no time. He cracked the Japanese codes in World War II. He graduated from Harvard in three years. Whatever else you want to say about him, he had a brilliant mind. By the time he was in his 90s, he was, he was fading. He couldn't perform simple tasks. You, you read that and you realize why he would have been so vulnerable. And in fact, whether you want to call it legally competent or not competent, he, he was vulnerable. And you see that play out. You know, it doesn't matter what the law said. He was being taken advantage of. I think that's a really interesting dichotomy between this question of his competency later in life when there are earlier reports of him doing irrational things when people would have argued he was very competent. The anecdote you related of him removing Tom Cruise off of Paramount because his girlfriend didn't like how he was jumping on the sofa <laughs> on right. his uh, famous Oprah interview. I think I would like to say as a rational human being, I'm not certain that that checks the, the rational box. And so I think it's very interesting how these irrational decisions earlier in life are just brushed aside as, as the whims of, of corporate leaders. But then when it's convenient later in life, suddenly we, we, we had that legal debate. Did you, know, you see I, a similar trend? Oh, sorry, go well, ahead. I, say, I think your point is something that is an important issue here, that when you, you see someone like Sumner Redstone, who is so rich... And he has so many hangers on telling him what he wants to hear. People like that don't recognize normal boundaries. You know, the things that would give other people pause, he just went right ahead and did. Whether that was putting a girlfriend on TV, whether that, like, there was a, like, a small anecdote that sticks in my mind where he had, he'd called a, a reporter and, you know, tried to, to get him to reveal a source. And the reporter recorded the conversation and wrote about it. And his PR person came in and said, Sumner, what, you know, what are you doing here? Why, why did you do that? And Sumner said, no, I never did that. I never said any of that. And the, the PR said, Sumner, it's on tape. He has it on tape. And then Sumner says, well, then just deal with it. Get rid of it. Do something. You know, he just bends the reality to whatever he wanted it to be in the moment. Now, I think we all know some other people like that in positions of power and prominence. But he is a very vivid example of that. And that, that is when he was at his peak. You know, I think that's a, a really good point about people in positions of power, because it seems like throughout all of these narratives, we have people who ended up kind of getting their comeuppance at the end, whether it was Redstone or Moonves, and then others like Redstone's live-in girlfriends who seem to have gotten away without any repercussions. Yeah, they, I mean, they made up with at least $150 million total. By the way, $45 million was was wired to each of them in one day, 90 million total. And, you know, as we detail in the book, there are institutions that are all too happy to take their money and have them sit on their boards and have them, you know, and, 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 and fawn them, fawn at them as philanthropists. And it does not seem that any of these institutions to which like Sydney Holland has donated money in the aftermath of all of this has been at all interested in inquiring, you know, what exactly went down at the house of Redstone. Nobody seems particularly interested in whether these women were abuse abusive to him. It just goes to show you that really money can buy a lot, including forgiveness and memory. But not happiness, as we talked about. Not earlier. happiness. Everybody needs to remember, not happiness. You know, going back to the boardroom dealings, I, I do have one question for you. We saw recently that Paramount released a, a $630 million dividend, and it's not something that a lot of the other streamers are doing. Disney's not doing it. Warner Brothers isn't doing it. 
Do you think that with some of these larger personalities out of the boardroom now, with the new members that Sherry has brought in, are they, do they have more skin, skin in the game? Are they being more conservative with their programming and business choices now than maybe they would have under a, a mogul CEO like they did in the past? Uh, I, I look, I don't, I don't know every single program that they're producing, but I would say that in contrast to say the Murdoch empire, which is, you know, closely identified with Fox News, the, the Redstone family has never been overtly political or tried to push any kind of agenda like that. I mean, Sumner had some troubling political views to, to put it mildly, which emerge in the book, but they, they didn't necessarily at all show up in the programming. What Sumner wanted to do was win. He wanted to be number one in the ratings. He wanted to make money. He wanted to track big audiences. And I think that was what really what really motivated him. Now, today, in a company like Paramount Global and many others, by the way, that are controlled by a shareholder who doesn't own a majority of the actual shares, you're going to have tension between the regular shareholders and somebody who has voting control and maybe has a much more sizable stake. And one of the, one of those tensions might be how do you you know deploy cash? Do you invest it more in the business? Do you do you provide more dividends when you have very large shareholders who need an income stream? And that's this this isn't necessarily true in the Redstone case, but their their interests are going to be different from the like average person who just owns a few hundred shares. So you know there, there's constant debate about that in corporate governance circles. But you know the simple answer is when shareholders buy these companies, they they know that there is a controlling shareholder and that these tensions may surface or they should know. When you said conservative, I, I thought you would, I was immediately thought that you meant um, conservative just in terms of like content, not politically. And I was going to say, <laughs> there's, li- there's literally a show on TV called MILF Manor, which was a premise for a show, a joke show on 30 Rock. Like it was like a fake show that is now actually on TV. They just did a Jersey Shore reunion. So I was, go- I was going to say that I think it's more of like a race to the bottom. So I'm giving you two answers, one of which you didn't you didn't actually have no, to. No, that's good because I actually, I did mean both. So I, I appreciate that. Well, this has been great. And I really appreciate you guys talking with us today. Uh, again, we've been talking to James Stewart and Rachel Abrams about their new book, Unscripted. Uh, thank you guys for joining us again. Thank you so much. Thanks. Pleasure. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 